0: This is Our American Stories, and on this day in history in 1874, Winston Churchill was born. Much is known by Americans about Churchill during World War II, but today, for the hour, we wanted to spend some time on Churchill's life after World War II and focus on one important event, one important speech, the famed Iron Curtain speech delivered in Fulton, Missouri. It revealed much about Churchill's thinking about philosophy, about national security and world order, about power, and most important, about a word you don't hear much anymore, statesmanship. It's a heck of a story, and we turn to Dr. Larry Orn's superb book, Churchill's Trial, Winston Churchill and the Salvation of Free Government, and of course all of our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And we asked Dr. Arn to do a reading for us on the critical chapter in question. What was the world like in 1946 leading up to Churchill's Iron Curtain speech?
1: Churchill gave his famous Iron Curtain speech, or the sinews of peace, as he called it, on March 5, 1946. By that year, he had carried Britain through the war against all odds, and his efforts were appreciated around the world. Despite the victory over Hitler, in some ways the world was in a worse situation in 1946 than before the war. The Soviet Union had risen as a terrifying power. Churchill's wartime ally Franklin Roosevelt was dead, and his successor Harry Truman was not well known to Churchill. The atomic bomb had been invented and used, and it presented a danger different in degree, and Churchill argued in kind to any that the world had known. Churchill and his conservative party had been soundly defeated in the 1945 election, and socialism was the doctrine and practice of Britain. Britain was financially weaker after the war, having spent its capital as well as its blood in the battle. Economically and politically, it was a divided and disrupted land. The invitation to give this speech presented Churchill a significant opportunity even in his significant life. None other than President Truman introduced him, and he was speaking in the president's home state at Westminster College in the town of Fulton, Missouri. Truman had added a postscript to the letter inviting Churchill to speak, which means that the invitation both did and did not come from the president of the United States. This ambiguity would prove useful. Churchill arrived at the White House on March 4 to travel to Fulton on the train with President Truman. A few days before Churchill's arrival, Truman had received the famous long telegram from George Kennan that helped to inspire the policy of containment. Tension was growing with the Soviet Union, and Truman was beginning to react in ways that would be fully revealed later with the Marshall Plan, the Truman Doctrine, giving economic and military support to Greece and Turkey to keep them from falling into the Soviet sphere and the Berlin
0: airlift. So what did Harry Truman think of the speech after reading it? Churchill reported that Truman read the
1: speech on the train on the way to Fulton and called it admirable, saying that it would do nothing but good, though it would make a stir... Later, when the wave of protest against the speech in British and especially American newspapers rose, Truman held to the line that Churchill was speaking only for himself and he had not known in advance what Churchill was going to say. Truman did not regard the loss of the 1945 election as a blessing, but there in Fulton it was useful to both Truman and Churchill. After a little joke about being familiar with Westminster, Churchill began his speech with the disclaimer that he was speaking as a private citizen. He had no official mission or status of any kind, and he spoke only for himself. There is nothing here but what you see. Of course, what the people saw, literally, was one of the most famous statesmen and the chief executive of the strongest nation on earth together on a podium.
0: Indeed, and what an image that was. Dr. Arnn went on to describe the structure of this speech.
1: The speech is structured as a movement from the general to the specific, from the universal to the particular. Its complexity arises partly from the fact that the specific things Churchill said enriched but also altered and qualified the general and universal things he said. The United States, Churchill said, stood at the pinnacle of world power. That gave it an awe-inspiring accountability. It must form an overall strategic concept, a phrase, Churchill said, of which American generals were fond. That overall strategic concept must be nothing less than the safety and welfare, the freedom and progress, of all the homes and families, of all the men and women in all the lands. These myriad homes and families must be shielded from the two giant marauders, war and tyranny. This must be accomplished through a world organization, the newly created United Nations. This United Nations must have real power, courts and magistrates, and also sheriffs and constables, meaning an international armed force provided by the powers and states that were members these would act under the orders of the united nations with the reservation that they may not be required to attack their home
0: country and here are the lessons learned from churchill as discussed in this speech after world wars 1 and 2
1: here is the first lesson from churchill after the two great wars one must speak and think universally war and tyranny have spread to every land and injured every home in every land these lands and homes must be protected. These universal ambitions were not without precedent in Churchill's thinking. He had strongly supported the failed League of Nations, though he regarded its structure as airy and unsubstantial. The United Nations must be a reality, and not a sham, he said at Fulton, a force for action, and not merely a frothing of words, a true temple of peace in which the shields of many nations can some day be hung up. Notice the word some day. The United Nations must not be merely a cockpit in a Tower of Babel, an interesting mixed metaphor. A cockpit is only by extension the command center of a ship or aircraft. In its root, it is a place where roosters fight. The Tower of Babel was the place where God deprived people of the ability to speak to one another and thereby separated them into different countries. He did this to discipline their hubris, and once he did, the people were set at odds. Apparently, fighting and the inability to converse are related Those who cannot talk to each other are likely to fight like roosters. Reason and force are the two alternative sources of political authority. The United Nations must be able to exercise force, but its authority cannot be complete until something more than force upholds it. Until this condition can be met, Churchill said, we cannot cast away the solid assurances of national armaments. Somehow the United Nations must command a legitimacy like that held in, say, the United States and Great Britain. Until that day, it is apparently not able to be the chief protector of the homes and families in all the lands against war and tyranny. Churchill did not say precisely how that was to be accomplished, but suggestions were to come.
0: More on this great speech on the day Winston Churchill was born in 1874. We're focusing in on the Iron Curtain speech with Dr. Larry Arne. This is our American Stories, celebrating the life of Winston Churchill, born on this day in history in 1874. What we love to do on this show is pick particular aspects, certain periods of a person's life rather than do the full biography. Focus in on one aspect, one time, something you may have known a little about but not enough about or maybe some part of a person's life you knew nothing about and... We're reading from, or we're having Dr. Arne, Dr. Larry Arne, read from his book, Churchill's Trial, Winston Churchill and the Salvation of Free Government. And Dr. Larry Arne is the president of Hillsdale College. Hillsdale is, of course, the sponsor of our This Days in History. And Dr. Arne did us the service of reading from a critical chapter in his book about the Iron Curtain speech. And this, of course, is had come on the heels of Churchill's terrible loss. In 1945, the conservatives and Churchill were booted out of office. No good deed goes unpunished. And Great Britain lurched straight into socialism. But back to the speech. Arne here describes, and now we return to the speech, Arne here describes the two marauders featured in the Iron Curtain speech, war and tyranny. Each of the two marauders, war and tyranny,
1: was given a section in the Fulton speech. The section on war made plain that the solution lay chiefly in the United Nations. On the other hand, nations must keep their weapons until the United States met all the conditions, until it was not a cockpit and a tower of Babel. In particular, one weapon, the overwhelmingly important weapon, must be held by the three nations that had it then and only by them. It would nevertheless be wrong and improvident to entrust the secret knowledge or experience of the atomic bomb which the United States, Great Britain, and Canada now share, to the world organization while it is still in its infancy. It would be criminal madness to cast it adrift in the still agitated and ununited world.
0: And here's Dr. Orrin on Churchill's second lesson learned regarding the United Nations in this speech and the distinction as it relates to different and differing kinds of nations.
1: The United Nations must be armed, but not with the ultimate weapon. The nations that hold that weapon now can be trusted with it. No one in any country has slept less well in their beds because this knowledge and the method and the raw materials to apply it are at presently retained in American hands. I do not believe we should all have slept so soundly if some communist or neo-fascist state monopolized for the time being these dread agencies. Up to this point, Churchill has focused on nations and their common interest on all nations working together for safety from the two marauders. But here Churchill raised for the first time the distinction among kinds of nations. There must be a united nations, but the nations it included were of different kinds and not ready, therefore, to unite toward a common end. It would be criminal madness to arm such a group with the ultimate weapon. This is the second lesson from Churchill. After two great wars, the free nations must lead, and they must protect themselves first.
0: Indeed. And here's Dr. Orn talking about this great Churchill speech and trusting the United Nations with any kind of force.
1: One must ask, if the United Nations cannot be trusted with the atomic bomb, why should it be trusted with any kind of force? The answer from Churchill was that mankind possessed the means of its own destruction. The quarrels among men and nations twice blew up the world. It was time to try something as big as the problem. But how to try it? That question brought up the second of the two great marauders, tyranny. The liberties enjoyed by individual citizens throughout the British Empire are not valid in a considerable number of countries, some of which were very powerful, Churchill said. These states had police governments. They exercised their power without restraint, under dictators, or by compact oligarchies operating through a privileged party and a political police. The existence of these tyrannies was the prime threat, as Hitler was the prime threat before his defeat. What was to be done about that? Churchill recommended one kind of restraint and another kind of assertion. The restraint was both military and diplomatic. It is not our duty at this time, when difficulties are so numerous, to interfere forcibly in the internal affairs of countries which we have not conquered in war. The force that tyrants used against their own people would not necessarily be met with force from outside. The relief of the oppressed peoples must wait, even if their relief was part of the overall strategic concept. Churchill's strategy concerned priorities— just as generals must prioritize when they fight.
0: And that's what statesmanship sounds like, a highly nuanced position. And Dr. Orr then goes on to talk about the limits that Churchill observed.
1: The limits that Churchill observed often in his career are implicit in his statement at Fulton that it is not our duty to interfere forcibly in the internal affairs of countries we have not conquered in war. Given those limits, what help was to be given to all those countries under the thumb of tyrannies, What was to be done for them?
0: It's such a question and as relevant today as it was then, as the United States navigates its way with the English-speaking countries about some real perils in the Middle East and beyond, what to do, and how to exercise restraint. Let's dig into the speech now, and here is one key part that Dr. Arn highlights in his book, and again the book is Churchill's trial, Winston Churchill and the Salvation of Free Government, and the speech, of course, is the Iron Curtain speech.
2: We must never cease to proclaim in fearless tones the great principles of freedom and the rights of man, which are the joint inheritance of the English speaking world, and which through Magna Carta, the Bill of Rights, the habeas corpus, trial by jury, the English common law, find their most famous expression in the American Declaration of Independence.
0: (laughs) And that's so good, it bears repeating, we must never cease to proclaim in fearless tones the great principles of freedom and the rights of man which are the joint inheritance of the English-speaking world and which through Magna Carta The Bill of Rights, the habeas corpus, trial by jury, and the English common law find their most famous expression in the American Declaration of Independence. And by the way, at Hillsdale College, you learned these truths. And for far too many English-speaking peoples, most wouldn't know Magna Carta from habeas corpus. Back to the speech. Then Churchill summarized what those documents were all about.
2: All this means that the people of any country have the right and should have the power by constitutional action, by free unfettered elections, with secret ballots, to choose or change the character or form of government under which they dwell. That freedom of speech and thought should reign. That courts of justice, independent of the executive, unbiased by any party, should administer laws which have received the broad assent of large majorities or are consecrated by time and custom. Here are the title deeds of freedom which should lie in every cottage home. Here is the message of the British and American peoples to mankind. Let us preach what we practice. Let us practice what we
3: preach.
0: And for the hour we're digging into and drilling down on the Iron Curtain speech of Winston Churchill, and we're celebrating his life. He was born on this day in history in eighteen seventy-four. And again, the focus, Dr. Larry Arne's book, Churchill's Trial. And it's a terrific read. Go to Amazon.com and order it. It's as relevant today as ever. And statesmanship is in short supply in this world. And anybody who knows anybody who knows somebody who's leading a country should read this book. And when we come back, we're going to dig into more, much more, of Dr. Larry Arnn's book. And Hillsdale College is a proud sponsor of this day in history, and they teach you all the finest things in life there. I had the honor and privilege to teach there a couple of weeks this past year. The students were terrific, engaged, smart, Indeed, when I took a constitutional law course, I was in over my head, and I had gone to a pretty good law school, the University of Virginia. And Dr. Arne and all the teachers there focus on the classics. So it's Plato, and it's Locke, and it's John Stuart Mill, and then it's the Founders, and there's plenty of art, there's plenty of science, and of course everywhere at Hillsdale College, there is sports because they're shoulder pads in Plato and they get along fine at Hillsdale College. And when we come back again, more with Dr. Larry Arne, the Iron Curtain speech, Churchill had been kicked out of power, but he was still Winston Churchill. And he comes to America to tell them about the world and tell the world that Churchill's thinking, his mind, his philosophy, and his statesmanship were still in great need. More on the life of Winston Churchill and the Iron Curtain speech after these messages. And back to our American stories and the story of the Iron Curtain speech as revealed in Dr. Larry Arne's Churchill's trial. And we're dealing with Winston Churchill for the hour he was born on this day in history in 1874. So much is known about his life during World War II. On the day of his birth, we're going to spend a lot of time on his early life and what made Churchill Churchill. Right now, we're focused on after he was kicked out of office and those later years, the post-World War II years. And Dr. Arn in his book talked about Churchill's deep knowledge about the power of
1: words. We who enjoy our freedom must never cease to proclaim in fearless tones the good of that freedom. We must say that the people in every country have the right to this freedom. We can distinguish those who have it from those who do not by asking whether... The people get to choose their government, speak their minds, and live in equality before stable and dependable laws, and we ourselves will both preach and practice this freedom and the kind of government necessary to preserve it. This may not seem like much. In the aftermath of World War, and in the presence of a massive Soviet military force occupying much of Eastern Europe, Churchill is promising only to continue to cherish and live by certain principles, and he is proposing never cease to proclaim those principles Lip service, but lip service is valuable. What one says will affect what one does. If what one says is true and valuable, then sooner or later it will affect what everyone does. Churchill was devoted to government that is parliamentary, government that proceeds by talking. It had been proved that Churchill was very ready to use force, but often he had been cautious in its use. He understood that words are weapons too. He would use the principles of freedom as a verbal weapon, Partly because force was impractical. Partly because words are powerful. Remember that Churchill thought Hitler weak because he was afraid of words. This means
0: that Hitler, too, understood the power of words. Indeed, words are weapons. No one understood that better than Churchill. Here, Dr. Ornn talks about Communist Russia and Churchill disputing the claims of that country.
1: Communist Russia had principles of its own to proclaim. It claimed that in order for all to have enough almost have the same. It claims that only a form of dictatorship can achieve this equal distribution. Churchill disputed this claim in his speech at Fulton, and so laid the ground for contesting it in deeds. He said, I have not yet spoken of poverty and privation, which are in many cases the prevailing anxiety. And we are plunged in the hunger and distress which are the aftermath of our stupendous struggle, but this will pass and may pass quickly." Passing depends, he says, on success against the martyrs of war and tyranny, and then upon science and cooperation. Then Churchill turned to one of his oldest authorities, the aforementioned Burke Cochrane, the mentor of his youth. Twenty three years after Cochrane's death, Churchill said, I have often used words which I learned fifty years ago from a great Irish American order, a friend of mine, Mr. Burke Cochrane. There is enough for all. The earth is a generous mother. She will provide in plentiful abundance food for all her children if they will but cultivate her soil in justice and in peace.
0: And Dr. Arne then goes on to talk about Churchill's desire to bridge the divide between East and West.
1: He wrote a long letter seeking to reach across the divide already growing between East and West. There's not much comfort in looking into a future where you and the countries you dominate, plus the Communist parties in many other states, are all drawn up on one side and those who rallied to the English-speaking nations on the other. It is quite obvious that their quarrel would tear the world to pieces, and that all of us leading men on either side who had everything to do with that would be shame before history. Even embarking on a long period of suspicions of abuse and counter-abuse and of opposing policies would be a disaster hampering the great development of world prosperity for the masses, which are attainable only by our trinity." I hope there is no word or phrase in this outpouring of my heart to you which unwittingly gives offense. If so, let me know. But do not, I beg you, my friend Stalin, underrate the divergences which are opening about matters which you may think are small to us, but are symbolic of the way English-speaking democracies look at life. Churchill's argument to Stalin, the builder of the Iron Curtain, was that conflict would cost both sides and therefore was not the best course for either, even if they did not fight even if they only suspected, abused, and opposed each other in policy, the great developments of world prosperity for the masses would be hampered. That development was possibly only by our trinity. For Churchill, the world may often be divided into hostile camps, but it need not be. When Churchill asserted that the earth is a generous mother, he was rejecting socialism, but he was also rejecting inevitable war between man and man and nation and nation.
0: Indeed, he had seen enough of war, That was clear, and not afraid of it, but seeking to avoid it when possible. He had many reservations about this United Nations, and he also understood the importance of the shared language of the English-speaking peoples.
1: His plan for a United Nations was couched with many reservations, but he meant it, too. He thought there was a basis for it in principle. After quoting Burke Cochrane, Churchill came, at last, To the crux of what I have traveled here to say, the sure prevention of war and the continuous rise of the world organization required the fraternal association of the English-speaking peoples, he said. This means a special relationship between the British Commonwealth and Empire and the United States. The people involved in this special relationship speak the same language. They are the English-speaking peoples. They do not occupy a tower of Babel, and they are therefore not likely to engage in fighting like roosters. Only a few days before the Fulton speech, Churchill had repeated in Miami the famous statement of Bismarck that the most important fact in the world was that the British and the American people spoke the same language. And what do the English-speaking peoples have to say in their common language? Churchill had already said in this speech that we must never cease to proclaim in fearless tones the great principle of freedom and the rights of man, and these are the joint inheritance of the English-speaking world. They are found in that list of documents, all written in English, The Magna Carta, the Bill of Rights, the habeas corpus, and the Declaration of Independence.
0: Dr. Arne went on to say this, and again, we're talking about the Iron Curtain speech in Dr. Larry Arne's book, Churchill's Trial. He went on to say, Notice that the crux of what Churchill traveled to Fulton to say was a point about the distinction among nations. Churchill came to propose a global strategy aiming to benefit all nations. But the principles key to the strategy were not shared by all nations. The nations that did share them were therefore crucial. They have faith in each other's purpose, hope in each other's future, and charity towards each other's shortcomings. The United Nations, Churchill said, will command overriding loyalties, but the special relationship is not inconsistent with them. On the contrary, it is probably the only means by which that organization will achieve its full stature and strength. Churchill working hard to bring and separate nations both together and yet distinguish them apart. Not simple, not easy stuff, but he was in his prime at Fulton, and this is one of the great speeches ever delivered on American soil That's why we're taking it apart here on Our American Stories. The life of Winston Churchill, born on this day in history in 1874. As always, all of our this days in history are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can get to you. Just go to hillsdale.edu and check out all of their great work, particularly the Constitution 101. So much of the theory, the groundwork, the framework that's laid down in this speech, you can find there. The Magna Carta. Again, not taught in high schools in this country, let alone colleges. The Declaration of Independence as the founder's key. The opening salvo to the closing salvo called the Constitution. You can't read the two of them. Anything but together. And again not discussed in most of our nation's high schools and colleges. When we come back, a final segment, the hour on the Iron Curtain speech, Dr. Larry Arnn reading from his book, Churchill's Trial. our American stories. On this day in history, in 1874, Winston Churchill was born. We're covering the Iron Curtain speech in Dr. Larry Arnn's book, Churchill's Trial. And he's been generous with us, Dr. Arnn, and read from a key part of the book centered around the Iron Curtain speech. And here is the most famous part of the speech.
1: From the special relationship, Churchill turned to the part of the speech that is most famous. He began with good words for Russia. The British want constant, frequent, and growing contacts between the Russian people and our own people on both sides of the Atlantic. Churchill addressed the Russians on behalf of both the United States and Great Britain, and he spoke of them as a unity. Churchill would seek these growing contacts and diplomatic relations with the Soviet Union for the rest of his career. Then Churchill said the famous hard words, From Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an Iron Curtain has descended upon the continent. Behind that curtain lay all the capitals of the ancient states of Central and Eastern Europe, Warsaw, Berlin, Prague, Vienna, Budapest, Belgrade, Bucharest, and Sofia. They and their peoples fell into what Churchill called the Soviet sphere. They were being
0: subjected to police governments. And let's take a listen to the actual speech.
2: From Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent. Behind that line lie all the capitals of the ancient states of Central and Eastern Europe. Warsaw, Berlin, Prague, Vienna, Budapest, Belgrade, Bucharest, and Sofia. All these famous cities and the populations around them lie in what I must call the Soviet sphere. And all our subjects in one form or another, not only to Soviet influence, but to a very high and, in some cases, increasing measure of control from, uh, from Moscow.
0: As Dr. Ornn then points out, one of the things Churchill reminded the world was that what he was in Fulton to do was do his best to avoid the mistakes of the 1930s. Churchill states
1: explicitly that he is trying to avoid the mistakes of the 1930s, when Hitler was not opposed until it was too late to stop him. This implies that the Soviet Union presents the same threat that Nazi Germany had presented. Churchill said, Last time I saw it all coming, and cried aloud to my fellow countrymen and to the world, but nobody paid any attention. Up until the year 1933, or even 1935, Germany might have been saved from the awful fate which has overtaken her, and we might all have been spared the miseries. Hitler let loose upon mankind. There was never a war in all history easier to prevent by timely action than the one which has just desolated such great areas of the globe.
0: And by the way, if you've ever ever been to the World War II Museum in New Orleans, you learn that 60 million people died in World War II. 60 million. It's unimaginable. The cities, the great cities of the world, many of them, laid down to rubble. Now we'd like to take you back in time for a full four minutes plus of this key part and the end part of the Iron Curtain speech. Here's Winston Churchill.
2: I saw it all coming and I cried aloud to my own fellow countrymen and to the world, but but no one paid any attention. Up till the year 1933 or even 1935, Germany might have been saved from the awful fate which had overtaken us. And we might all have been spared the miseries Hitler let loose upon mankind. There never was a war in history easier to prevent by timely action than the one which has just desolated such great areas of the globe. It could have been prevented, in my belief, without the firing of a single shot. And Germany might be powerful, prosperous, and honored today. But no one would listen. One by one, we were all sucked into the awful whirlpool. Surely, ladies and gentlemen, I put it to you, surely we must not let that happen again. <clears throat> this can only be achieved by reaching now. In 1946, this year, 1946, by reaching a good understanding on all points with Russia under the general authority of the United Nations Organization, and by the maintenance of that good understanding through many peaceful years, by the world instrument supported by the whole strength of the English-speaking world and all its connections, there is, is the solution which I respectfully offer to you in this uh, address to which I have given the title, The Sinews of Peace. Let let no man underrate the abiding power of the British Empire and and Commonwealth. Because you see the... Because you see the 46 million in our island, harassed about their food supply, of which they only grow one half, even in wartime, or because we have difficulty in restarting our industries and export trade after six years of passionate war effort, do not suppose we shall not come through these dark years of privation as we have come through the glorious years of agony. Do not suppose that half a century from now, you will not see 70 or 80 millions of Britons spread about the world, united in defense of our tradition and our way of life, and of the world qualities which you and we espouse. If, if, if the population of the English speaking Commonwealth be added to that of the United States, with all that such cooperation implies in the air, on the sea, all over the globe, and in science, and in industry, and in moral force, there will be no quivering, precarious balance of power to offer its temptation to ambition or adventure. On the contrary, there will be an overwhelming assurance of security, If we adhere faithfully to the Charter of the United Nations and walk forward in sedate and sober strength, seeking no one's land or treasure, seeking to lay no arbitrary control upon the thoughts of men, if all British moral and material forces and convictions are joined with your own in fraternal association, the high roads of the future will be clear. Not only for us, but for all. Not only for our time, but for a century to come.
0: And there you have it, the end of that great speech. And back to Dr. Larry Orne. And what was Churchill really up to? Forging a strategy for the future of the world and how to avoid war with the Soviet Union.
1: Churchill did not expect war, as there was before the Second World War, so now there was time to make preparations. I do not believe that the Soviet Union desires war. What they desire is the fruits of war and the indefinite expansion of their power and doctrines. Then he said, There is nothing they admire so much as strength and there is nothing for which they have less respect than for weakness, especially military weakness. For that reason, the old doctrine of balance of power is unsound. We cannot afford, if we can help it, to work on narrow margins, offering temptations to a trial of strength. If the Western democracies stand together in strict adherence to the principles of the United Nations Charter, their influence for furthering those principles will be immense, and no one is likely to molest them. If, however, they become divided or falter in their duty, and if these all-important years are allowed to slip away, then indeed catastrophe may overwhelm us all. That was Churchill's strategy for the future of the world. It involved a few principles common to his thinking about war and politics throughout his life. The free nations must understand, value, proclaim, and practice their freedom. They must bind together to constitute overwhelming force. They must keep the most potent weapons to themselves as far as they are able. They must build international organizations that are widely inclusive and, if possible, global. They must stand against aggression consistently, but not necessarily everywhere. They must understand the places that are important, fight the battles that they must, but avoid, if at all possible, the battles presented upon unfavorable ground.
0: He was not a fan of balance of power. Note the use of the words overwhelming force. And then... Dr. Oren summarizes it all, how the speech started, the Iron Curtain speech, and how it ended.
1: The speech began universally with the marauders of war and tyranny. It ended in particularity with political principles of freedom, particular nations that practice those principles, and the association of the strongest of those nations in a special relationship. Security for the world must be built upon the strongest free nations, and they must be protected and protect one another. Their principles guide and their strength must support the world organization. In that case, it could provide a safeguard sufficient to protect the world in a time when mankind had the ability to destroy itself.
0: Yes, mankind has the ability always to destroy itself. Churchill, the end part of his life, using the force of his intellect to try and avoid that prospect, having lived through... On the narrow margins, the edge of darkness. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. The life of Winston Churchill, born on this day in history in 1874. Thank you, Dr. Larry Arne, And the book, Churchill's Trial, Winston Churchill and the Salvation of Free Government. American stories and we came across a great story in the Wall Street Journal and the headline was mascots are getting a hall of fame and it's making Benny the Bull emotional and so when you get a headline like that you got to dig in and the Wall Street Journal does so many really great Americana stories on their front page that's the wallstreetjournal.com go there and subscribe wsj.com and joining us well, we had to talk to David Raymond because, well, he's the guy behind all this. And David, thanks so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. It's great to be here. And any
4: time that we're talking about furry fun, um, I've I got to be a part of it.
0: Well, David, to start with, you were the original Philly fanatic from 1978 to 1993. And bless your heart, if I could be any mascot anywhere, I would have wanted to be the Philly fanatic. What fun watching him or her. Was there ever a her do his or her well, thing?
4: Yeah, yeah, there actually is. There, there's uh, Phoebe, who is the fanatic's mother, and Phyllis, who is, um, let's just call her his special
0: interest. <laughs> uh-huh. Very nice. And what was that? How did you audition for that job? How did you prepare for that job? Is there, is there a way to prepare for the role the way an actor would prepare for a role?
4: Well, it's it's funny, you know, with what we do with our business, you know, we we find and performers, train performers, we place performers a full time job, um, uh, we we help the um, uh, the Los Angeles Clippers fill their new performer position, um, and and we do it quite frequently. So there's a real process now, but back when I started, I, I was the guy that was dumb enough to say yes to having a 300 pound green furry Muppet entertain the same fans at boots the Easter Bunny. So um, I was low man on the totem pole. I was an intern from in 76 and 77 with the Phillies. and 78, when they created what looked like a very bad idea on paper, um, they needed a few things, and one of them was somebody to commit to stay for all the games. And I, I was doing that. I'm a big Phillies fan. Um, I very good friends with the Carpenter family who, who owned the ball club before Bill Giles and his group purchased it and um you know it was a it was a dream for me to be there as an intern i and i was doing the worst jobs you can imagine so i figured you know so what i figured this thing will last for a couple of weeks and and it'll be panned in the media and but i can always say i was the guy that first put on that crazy costume that they that they threw away so uh, so there was no plan there was no preparation frankly i had to go to the phillies and say what is it that you want me to do and and they said go out and have fun and when i went, when i went running out of the room after they told me that, because I thought, wow, this is great. I'm getting paid to have fun. They screamed at me, G-rated fun. <laughs>
3: they, were,
4: they just told a college student to go have a good time, and that was his prime directive. So, um, you know, no, no real plan. It, it, we, were just, um, it, we were just throwing stuff up on the wall, and this was one of those things that stuck.
0: And what a beautiful thing, and what a beautiful prerogative to be given. I mean, you had a clean slate. You could just about do anything you wanted to do in front of thousands and thousands of people, and you got to hang out in a ballpark.
4: Oh, yeah. And, and what was even more exciting for somebody my age, you know, 20 years old at the time um, was that, you know, I was a huge uh, baseball fan and I was a huge Phillies fan. I got to mingle and, and mix and get to know um, the, the Phillies players and, and had some still have some long standing friendships with them uh, and then met the, the visiting players, even though they didn't know who I was, but they, they knew who the fanatic was. And I it was like living the dream. And, and actually for a little bit pretending uh, like I was a member of a major league baseball team, or I was like a player. So, so that was the, you know, the icing on the cake.
0: It was, and you got to, you got to see some pretty great teams. There were some really great Philadelphia Philly team Phillies teams during that time, weren't there?
4: Well, it was really the beginning of um, un- until 2008 um, it, it, their run. It was the beginning of the Phillies first real sustained uh Success on the field. So they had the year before; they had made it, uh, um, you know, into the playoffs, but got beat uh, by the Dodgers, and um, our, our hopes were dashed once again. And when the fanatic was created, it started that movement into not only uh, winning, um, you know, a National League Championship, but uh, winning a World Series. So, yep. so it was really a wonderful time uh, through my tenure. They. They made it to three World Series. They they won one and, and had a number of, uh, um, you know, those National League championships. So it was really, really a, a, the best time uh, to have you know, been part of the team. Hey,
0: did sure. you get a ring? Did you get a ring? I, I did, actually. I got three well, yes. rings. I,
4: I, I have a World Series ring from 80, and I have the two losers rings from, from 83 and 93. And, uh, you know, I, I do a lot of public speaking. And and I do meet and greets afterwards and people just love to come up and see those rings, try them on, take selfies. So it, it that has been a really fun thing for me to stay connected with the Philadelphia fans that way. So
0: you've had a big fight with your wife. You're really bummed out or you're just hung over. How does the Philly fanatic get psyched up and just get it done?
4: Well, you know, it's, it really is about the power of fun. It, you know, I went through, uh, you know, the, I went through my marriage training program like a lot of people could can relate to out there. And uh, I was devastated when my first marriage didn't make it. And my my mother, unfortunately, passed away when she was 59 from brain cancer. And those both of those times were when at the height of my work as a fanatic. And when I was going through those difficult things, I at times I thought I'm not going to be able to do this. And what I found out very quickly was working in costume was the, the perfect distraction. And I discovered people were drawn to the fanatic and are drawn to mascots because it's this powerful fun. It's, it's the distraction of silly entertainment that for the moment that you're involved, you forget all your problems. So as the performer, I had the ability to be somebody completely different. So I had that distraction continuously or any time that I wanted it so my job became one of the healthiest functions uh, for my emotion and my you know my you know for my, my mental activity you it was bet. the best
0: thing you bet by. and by the way i might add that it's a relief and release for a lot of people that go to the park too david i think that's why so many people love sports a distraction from the ordinary burdens and strains and stresses of regular life we're talking to david raymond And by the way, I love your title, The Emperor of Fun and Games at Raymond Entertainment Group. And he's also the founder of the Mascot Hall of Fame. We'll get into that in a bit after these messages. This is Lee Habib. This is our American story. This is our American Stories, talking to David Raymond. And we're talking about mascots. And by the way, people love their mascots. We're going to get into it in a little bit about college mascots, professional mascots, the variety, the full, the full scope. Some of them funny, some of them serious, everything from wolverines to blue hens. And we're going to cover them all. But a little bit more about you, David, and, and this idea of a Hall of Fame. Um, when did it come to you and... What were the difficulties in bringing this to light?
4: well, it was like like a lot of great ideas uh, it wasn't mine. That's the first thing uh i I wish it was completely mine, but it was actually my my employee Chris Bruce, uh had come to me after the um the sausages were attacked in Milwaukee. If you remember that episode where Randall Simon hit one of the uh one of the famous sausages over the head as it ran by the dugout uh in Miller Park that day. And it became a big news story. I was getting calls from all the major uh, um, news brands, CBS, NBC, and on, uh, Fox, uh, NPR. They all called me, wanted to know what we thought of this, this mascot abuse. And we decided to do a mascot march on the city of Philadelphia to introduce a bill of rights for mascots as a kind of a silly, fun promotion. And we got so much media coverage, we did it the second year. And that was 2003-2004. And in 2005, Chris came up to me in the office and said, hey, this is the time for us to have a mascot Hall of Fame. We've talked about it before. You know, let's leverage all this fun we've had. And that's what we did. And we inducted that first year of course the fanatic the phoenix gorilla and the the famous chicken from San Diego yep the three arguably the three characters that changed you know the genre the genre of mascots and uh, and we had again tremendous success the owner of the phoenix suns actually came all the way from, he's a billionaire robert sarver came to philadelphia to introduce the phoenix gorilla and and i knew when he showed up i said this is really tapping into a real passion people love and believe in their mascot brands like they're real. And when they get an honor like this, they take it seriously. Um, So from that point forward, we've inducted 17 total uh, mascots, including um, 10 Pro and 7 Colleges. And we did a number of live inductions, both uh, and also in front of the, the inductees' crowds. And the city of Whiting called me about four years ago and said, we want you here. We're the silly little wacky city that could. And and it's a perfect, you know, entertainment piece for us. We're building an entertainment complex. We've we've built a beautiful uh, lakefront on Lake Michigan. It's only 30 miles south uh, east of Chicago and um, in northwest Indiana. And it was perfect. You know, we went there We met with the mayor. And sure enough, here we are groundbreaking. The, the bulldozers just dug the hole the other day. And uh, in 2018, early, we're going to open the doors to the Mascot Hall of Fame.
0: I love some of the puns here. There's a lot of fuzzical education happening there, and the fur is coming. And But the thing is, it's not just all fun and games. In the article, in the Wall Street Journal article, I'm going to read just a touch to you because it's so good. Barry Anderson, who performed for more than a decade at, Chica- at Chicago Bulls games as Benny the Bull, who isn't a member of the Hall, choked up when simply talking about the prospect. I get very emotional about the work, said Mr. Anderson, who is known for his acrobatic trampoline dunks during timeouts and firing T-shirts into the crowd using a bullzooka. Benny the Bull and Tommy Hawk, the feathery frontman for the NHL Chicago Blackhawks, are considered strong candidates for the Hall this year, says David Raymond. And and what I love about this is you're doing the same sort of marketing and lead-up that the NFL Hall of Fame does, that the Baseball Hall of Fame does. And, and how's that working? Is the sports world and the media picking up on this each year? It,
4: it, it is, we, and that's what we were taught all the way back in 2003 when we did that mascot march. Anytime you get a group of mascots together, it looks funny, so B-roll footage looks great. Um, it, it, it is funny. Um, it, it, it's a perfect story as a kicker at the end of a broadcast, and, and we just continue to get that type of excitement. However, it's become even more emotional and connected because we're in the midst of a, of a popular vote right now where you can go on mascothalloffame.com and vote on the current ballot, which, by the way, fast forward, does include Benny the Bull and Tommy Hawk, uh, as well as Slugger, Stuff from Orlando, Harry Dog from Georgia, um, and, and the Penn State Nittany Lions. So you can vote for any of those right now, and it's, it's just built tremendous passion and emotion with the constituents and the fans and, and alumni and, uh, and faculty um, and people in those organizations. So um, it's been really relatively easy to do. I, I mean, the Phillies just gave us the largest grant uh, that any Major League Baseball team has done. Uh, we're going to other all other major league organizations and asking for philanthropic support. It's it's a nonprofit organization, yep. um, and we're we're teaching STEM and STEAM principles to elementary school kids as the backdrop of the educational piece. To probably what would be best described as the Disney of mascots. It's going to be an unbelievable environment for families and people want to come back again and again. It's just really a wonderful. Um, wonderful facility.
0: And we're talking to David Raymond and com is where you can go. He also runs Raymond Entertainment Group. They're in the serious business of developing and creating full character branding programs and mascots for sports teams, colleges and universities and also corporations. And actually, uh, our American stories, we're going to need a mascot too. So we'll have to talk about that offline. <laughs> you know, one of the funny stories I like is my goodness, people are really politicking for this, like the Oscars. Jazz Bear from the Utah Jazz, bas- Jazz basketball team submitted a video in which Utah Senator Orrin Hatch extolled the mascot's significance in the community, and the video ends with a camera panning out to reveal Jazz Bear polishing the senator's shoes. That's really good. I love it, this it, stuff.
4: It is good, and you, and you know, just Lee, it's interesting with the you know with the political climate we're in with. Um, You know, with all kinds of um, push and pull, whatever side that you're on, um, and some nastiness for sure, you know, maybe the end of some political correctness that that cuts down on creativity. And when you see a guy like Orrin Hatch willing to, you know, have a little bit of fun in a video that's a little less reverent, and he does it because it's part of a mascot routine, that is what mascots do It, it. we step off of our perch for a minute and say, yeah, I can have a little bit of fun. And if, it can, if we can get somebody like Orrin Hatch to poke some fun at himself, you know, we're, we're – I mean, I, as the fanatic, I, I ran into uh, Ted Kennedy and Ethel Kennedy and, and, and worked with all kinds of celebrities and, and politicians. And every single one of them stops for a moment, gets a hug and a kiss and a high five from, from a
0: mascot. So exactly. it, it works.
4: It really is powerful.
0: Exactly. Let's talk about some of the, some of the work you do developing mascots and the like, what, what goes into that? Somebody calls you up and says, you know, we're, we're thinking about, you know, something. And I mean, how, do, how does, how does somebody pitch you? How do you do your work? How do you do your business? Well, the first,
4: the first thing that happened, I mean, we use, we use our backstory as being experts in the business and 38 years of of being successful. That's how we get people to us. But when they start with us, they all want to know what it looks like. And we tell them quickly what it looks like is about fourth or fifth on the priority list. The first thing that you need to do is you need to plan for success, you know, like any other business venture. But second, the most important thing that you do is it's about storytelling. So we tell all of our clients to go back and try to develop the concept of a story that connects with their, their organization, their, their alumni, their fans, their community, and build a story that automatically will have buy-in from those audience. Uh, touch points. Uh, Disney taught that, you know, Disney said, you know, when Bambi's mother gets killed in the first few minutes uh, of that movie, you think, my gosh, this is a, this is a cartoon movie done by Disney. And here's a, you know, a mother gets murdered in front of its, of its young. Uh, How can that be Disney? Well, Disney got you to care about the characters. So for us, it's storytelling and making a flawed character that people can relate to and that they'll care about. If you do those things, you will have a wonderful, powerful character brand.
0: And by the way, it's not always fun in games. You know, a lot of these mascots like the great, you know, characters, the old cartoon characters like Wile E. Coyote. I mean, they have a little devilish side and playful side to them. And sometimes there are even some fights. Talk about that line that the mascot has to draw between being too nice and being a little devilish.
4: Well, it's, you're, you're right. I mean, it, it, tempers flare uh, when there's passion. So I, I've seen more mascot, actual real mascot fights in the collegiate environment because of, of, of how passionate and important those games are. Um, but, you know, there's occasional fan that's had a few uh, adult beverages that decides that he doesn't like the mascot, uh, you know, putting his arm around his girlfriend. <laughs> um, so you, it, it's a sixth sense that you have or it's common sense that you have to try to keep your wits about you. And, and, and one thing is to make sure you take breaks before you get tired, because when you get tired, you make bad decisions. But it's a dangerous environment. I mean, there's been a lot of uh, mascot injuries. So, so it's not the easiest job in the world. you got to be safe and take care of yourself and, and use your common sense.
0: You bet. And when we come back, we're going to run through a whole bunch of mascots, some of the favorites here on the show. And we're going to tell a mascot story about old Miss mascot, Colonel Reb. Who was sort of put in a lockbox, and then their new mascot had to come in, and well, nobody likes the new mascot. And what's it like to be a mascot that's not loved? That's gotta be a bummer. This is Our American Stories, the Mascot Hall of Fame. More after these messages. segment with david raymond the founder of the mascot hall of fame he also runs raymond entertainment group and that's RaymondEG.com. and by the way he has dave raymond's mascot boot camp which alex should go to too and see what that's like uh we want to go through some great mascots now and uh we want to tell a great mascot story as well about old mrs mascot but let's run through the two different types of mascots. They're, they're kind in the costumes, sort of the entertainment mascots, and there are those beloved prized animals. Um, talk about some of the great mascots you don't have at the Hall of Fame because they're actually living, or do you?
4: Well, you know, it's, it is it is a discussion we've had. We have a criteria, believe it or not. Even, even though our tongue's firmly planted in our cheeks, we, we do have a process. And the criteria does state that it needs to be a costumed character so it would uh based on that criteria it eliminates uh either the the live animals or some of the human beings um but we think that there's going to be a place for those types of characters we think there's going to be a place for the actual performers which we're not talking about highlighting yet um you know and and certainly some of the human characters Uh, um you know max packin was the one who started well al Shack before him and mal max packin they were the first human characters that were somewhat like clowns that entertained during baseball games, uh, in the fifties. Um, and Max, you know, continued on until, um, you know, the late seventies. Uh, so, so they, they kind of set the tone for that, that I think the chicken came after that, but great animal, like, like Ugga for the university of Georgia. Um, and Harry dog happens to be the, the, the costume character that's on the ballot this year, but Ugga, you know, there's a long line of these revered uh, bulldogs that are actually buried uh, right uh, as part of the stadium complex, where people go as a pilgrimage to see the graves of the Uggas. I mean, it's wonderful love and passion. Uh, War Eagle for Auburn is an, is another example of a of an animal mascot, and, and there are there are many um, that are used in the case of stirring up the crowd or or getting this great passion um behind those and they are usually combined with a um you know with a costume character as well um florida state was an example you brought up where where they have the chief that comes out and puts the spear into the ground at the 50 yard line and and, i mean you've never heard a stadium erupt any louder than i never heard any
0: sound like that in my life and i thought to be that chief just once and come onto a stadium and do that wow
4: phenomenal and yep. and you know and and it's a skilled person who can ride a horse and the horse is beautiful and 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 I think it's a wonderful reflection um you know of that uh, of that community that has agreed uh that they appreciate that type of reverence that uh Florida state gives them and and that's why they were not struck down by the NCAA's uh, requirement to do so because um you know that that Indian uh, tribe had had said this is something that's reverent and revered and, and we appreciate that type of illustration. Yep. So, so it works. I mean, it, you know, political correctness aside, there's times when these things work because of the pure passion and understanding of the fan.
0: Base. You bet. And so let's rip through, and I know you can't be partial in these matters, but talk about some of the, 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 the great characters through history and up to the present uh, in college and in pro sports. Uh, and and particularly, which sports do the best job at this? And which sports have the most mascots? Is football? Does football do a better job? Does baseball uh, do a better job? Which sport has the most mascots?
4: Well, I, I would I would say that the, the the one organization, top to bottom, that appreciates it, that stewards mascot brands, uh, that merchandises mascot brands the best, is the NBA. Um, and it, and I appreciate the understanding from the New York office. They, they, they actually give an award out to the best NBA mascot of the year, uh, and they send people out to watch the NBA environment, and uh, game ops and entertainment, they give them awards for each of those, and the, and the, every year the mascot, the NBA, gives uh, one of the mascots that title. Uh, so, I, so I really appreciate what the NBA does. I think the lowest on the scale of those uh, – um, of all of those items would be the NHL or maybe even soccer, and that's in part because the culture and the history of those sports has never been um, i guess the best way to describe it, has never been fond of the concept of a mascot being powerful. some of them have them and some of them do them do them well in the NHL, but for the most part, the culture of hockey and the culture of soccer coming over from Europe makes it difficult for mascots to be successful now I, I say that with the fact that we are actually working with Manchester City over in the UK to work on their character brands and make them stronger. So there are some exceptions. I think in the in the history of, of mascots, I think the collegiate sector is the one um, that has created characters that maybe don't look the best in terms of a costume, but have the most support because of, of the passion. So virtually every single college, you know, from Alabama and big Al all the way to the, the, the banana slugs. I mean, you've got, or yep. the, or the, or the artichokes, believe it or not, with their football team has the word chokes on the side of their helmet, yep. which the which their, their coach quipped, it's difficult to recruit for a team when you're chokes. <laughs> so, so I, I really think that across the board, there will always be an illustration of a great character that's been branded well, And then at the same time, there are characters that probably should not have even been conceived. Uh, You know, Puffy the Taco comes to mind out in San Antonio for minor league baseball. Um, So so I really think from a professional standpoint, the NBA is the best. The collegiate sector, I think, has the most history and passion, and and they celebrate all of that. So if you go to the University of Kansas, um, you will see – the story of the of the original Baby J that was really built in somebody's basement. Yeah, uh, a young young lady who was a big fan built Baby J, and they have the original Baby J costume that she built in a giant case. So so it, it's kind of all over the map, um, but I think what remains is the passion um, and the celebration of of organizations that people uh, love and. And, and will
0: revere. It's so true. Here at Ole Miss, Colonel Reb was really revered for many years. I, I think a, fo- a few folks in the faculty said that it was offensive, that some people took offense, though it was never really proven. And uh, time and time again, people would do polling, and no one found it offensive. It looked a lot like Colonel Sanders. But they just put it in a lockbox. And then they had people vote, and no one wanted to vote. And next thing you know, there's this black bear It started running around the stadium. And, David, you have to see it. Because no one gives him a high five. And he he hides half the time in the big football and basketball games. He hides because the fans don't like him. And there's nothing worse than being a mascot who's not loved at home games, David. I'm thinking I would take pills before I... Well,
4: Lee, listen. This is perfect because, you know, I'm the expert. I'm the high-paid consultant. So I would say this. It's not a good idea to create a, ba- a mascot that nobody likes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty much a bad idea. <laughs> right. And last, just the last thought: the mascot boot camp. Describe it. We got about a minute left for you. Uh, describe what goes on at that boot camp.
4: It, it's really it started for serious performers that wanted to get better at their craft, and we treat it very much like an acting class. And there's some there's enormous uh, similarities to what you would do as an actor. Uh, you know, you have to know who you're portraying and what their attitudes are. Um, but what it's grown into is, is actually us starting to develop fantasy mascot camps for people who always say, man, I would love to be the fanatic. And for a day of training uh, and then we find an event with costumes and let these, uh, and some are uh, adults into their sixties and some are as young as seven years. Old, um, and we, we teach them how to be safe and how to have fun. And then we put them in costumes and take them to an event and, when people come out of that, they, they tell you like I did the first time I did the fanatic, that's the greatest thing I've ever done. Uh, never had more fun in my life. Um, you know, some some people are dealing with with physical maladies like um, like autism, and and we make them happy too. So, so oh, David, I have I have so many
0: that. physical and mental maladies, and I want to <laughs> be the Philly fanatic. So I want to come to the boot camp, and I want to take you up on that. That would be nothing would make me more thrilled than to go out in front of an audience. And be the fanatic. I've been talking to David Raymond, and he's the founder of the Mascot Hall of Fame. And you can go to MascotHallofFame.com. Also, Raymond Entertainment Group. That's RaymondEG.com. David Raymond, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Lee. I loved it. You bet. And this is, again, Our American Stories. We love sports. We love mascots. This is our American stories and we've been talking about mascots because of a terrific piece in the Wall Street Journal about the mascot Hall of Fame and there's nothing more American than sports and the way we, well, the way we put so much of our energy and passion into it. Some people think it's silly. I think it's just fantastic. And David Raven had joined us for the last few segments, and he's the founder of the Mascot Hall of Fame. And it was himself the original Philly fanatic of the Philadelphia Phillies. Now we're going to bring you one of the other mascots mentioned in that article in the Wall Street Journal, the man behind another legendary mascot known as Clutch the Bear of the Houston Rockets. And joining us now is Robert Bodwin. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me on, guys. I really appreciate it. Oh, uh, you bet. And should we call you the artist formerly known as Clutch?
5: Yeah, thedeadmascot.com, theartistformerlyknownasclutch.com, robertbodwin.com. I answer to all these names and all these websites. Excellent. So I love
0: prefer. it. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us how you got to be Clutch. How did this happen?
5: You know, I think my story is very similar to a lot of professional mascots. You know, there's only about 125 guys nationwide that do this full-time for a living. And I think the vast majority would kind of say that they fell into it. Uh, It's not like you set out as a child uh, to be a mascot performer uh, as a profession. Um, I didn't even know it was a profession when I started doing it in high school and then got to Delaware at the university. I grew up in the suburbs of Philly, did it for the Wissahickon High School. I was the Trojan. Um, I wore a, My face showed and I wore a body armor and painted my face and wore a kilt. And then when I got to college, I started the mascot there, the University of Delaware Blue Hen, a UD character in 1993. And just kind of met some cheerleaders freshman year, told them I did it in high school. And they said, yeah, you should try out. Uh, so I did and I, I won the role. Did it in, in high school or college and then started to realize that there's guys that did this full-time year-round as a profession. Uh, and that's kind of when I started aspiring to do it. Uh, met Dave Raymond that you mentioned earlier who uh, has been on your program. He was the original fanatic. He had just retired when I started the character at Delaware. But his father was our football coach, Tubby Raymond, and uh, Dave was on the sidelines all the time. So I kind of looked up to Dave as a uh, trailblazer and, uh, you know, kind of a founder of the profession. Uh, and uh, then I kind of realized that people do do this and uh, started auditioning uh, for jobs come uh, the summer after my junior year and won the Rockets audition in 1995 and uh, kind of went to school to be an accountant but came out wearing fur.
3: Unbelievable! And,
5: uh, I spent 21 years at the Rockets, uh, and I got to be honest with you. Um, I, by far, this career by far exceeded my wildest dreams. I, you know, I first got into it to kind of be funny and goof around and be center of attention in a costume and that license to kind of break this, the rules of social engagement, invade people's space, and uh, improv. But in the time that I've spent here, I've gotten to do so much more with it. We've done 1,750 school shows in front of 1.2 million Houston youth. I did a school show last year. A teacher came up to me at the end of it and said, man, that show was even better the second time around. And I said, oh, were you a teacher at the school uh, you know, that I did the year before and transferred? And she said, no, I saw it in fourth grade. <laughs> so uh, it, it made me feel both insulted that I'm now 42, yeah. and uh, like I in, like I affected a generation of Houstonians with their their education. Uh, we wrote seven different storybooks. I've traveled the globe to 12 different countries, performed on armed forces entertainment tours on military bases overseas. Uh, it, it's just been a wonderful experience, and uh, the Houstonians that have allowed me into their hearts over the years. I thank
0: immensely. That's fantastic. Uh, You know, you received attention in an Internet meme that involved a man being shot down during a halftime marriage proposal at a Rockets (laughs) game in 2008 after the woman said no and stormed (laughs) off the court. Tell us what happened next.
5: Well, um, without divulging any trade secrets, uh, some of those bits are staged, some aren't. And we kind of leave our fans guessing as to which ones are and which ones aren't. Um, I, w- I remember that bit well. This was back when uh, YouTube was starting to gain more and more popularity for watching stuff and I think we got eleven million hits on that in just a week or so's time and we started getting calls from around the globe. A, uh, a TV station in Japan did a story on it and uh,
3: it, it was It was
5: a memorable moment uh, that I, I definitely consider in one of the top of my career. And really had the uh, the crowd at first shocked and in disbelief, and then kind of offended. (laughs) They were mad at that woman for saying no to uh, to the proposal, at least publicly, and uh, created quite a a stir.
0: Well, whether it was true or not, we just we're just you're not going to divulge, are you? You're not giving it up, are you? (laughs) Right here, you can make history. You can tell us.
5: that a, a true uh, magician never reveals the secrets right. to his trick. That is so and true. I kind of view this as uh, is that, magic uh, and the whole craft of mascotting.
0: You've been a craft of mascotting. Can you tell us one of the crazier things you've seen or experienced as a mascot?
5: Oh, my goodness. There's so many. In 1998, I accidentally shot Catino Mobley in the chest with our T-shirt gun, and we haven't had a T-shirt gun at the Houston Rockets since then. <laughs> um, one of the cheerleaders was looking one way, but running the other way and accidentally banged into me and we had cheerleaders on the court to throw to the lower level because this gun which we affectionately called the bfg i'll let you figure out what the f stands for uh but the bfg was so powerful we only shot it to the upper level and they had to throw to the lower level well she's looking one way uh bangs into the back of me and i'm in the costume, I don't see her coming, knocks me forward to my knees, sets off the gun, and I'm only 20 feet from the huddle where Rudy T is instructing the team at a timeout. The T-shirt rockets right into, rockets, so to speak, Aha! <laughs> into the huddle, drops Katino Mobley like a sack of bricks. Right there. They had to cart him off the court. You want to talk about, and I had no clue what happened, because I'm in the costume, I just get knocked down, I heard the gun go off. I jump right back up and finish t T-shirt toss, and there's the stupid bear with his big grin painted on his face like, that, who wants a shirt? Right after I just shoot our starting forward in the <laughs> chest and knock him out of the game. Um, I've been humped by Jack Nicholson. Um, my first year on the job, we just won two championships. Jack Nicholson's sitting courtside next to our owner. I go to do this routine where I act like I'm sitting on his lap and uh, bouncing up and down on his knee like a little eight-year-old or like a little four-year-old child would, what I don't realize is all of a sudden the whole crowd laughs hysterically. (laughs) A big, huge guffaw. And I'm like, kind of scratching my head like, oh, this is funny, but it's not that funny. And unbeknownst (laughs) to me, what he had done, and the cameraman's right there, is he wraps his one arm around the waist of the bear, which is a 92-inch waist, and it's mostly dead space and padding in there. So I don't feel it. And he looks next to her at the camera and he acts like he's thrusting into the backside of the costume. And I don't feel it because there's just hula hoops in there that give it shape. And I'm not putting any pressure on his knees. I just kind of squat making it look like I'm sitting on him so I don't hurt anybody. And then, of course, I finish the routine out by jumping up, bowing down to him and kissing his feet because he's a big celebrity. But what it looks like is that he's you know, kind of humping me from behind. And then I thank him for it. Um, you know, I, I could go on and on about the stories. I ruined an MLK Day parade by accident one time. Uh, we do this MLK Day parade every single year. We're one of the highlights of the parade. I'm in the van. Uh, I'm in my big mascot van. I'm sitting on the hood, and I shoot off streamers, one after another, cannons, streamer cannons. Well, my assistant had accidentally packed these Mylar metallic uh, streamers. Well, we're going right, through, right by the big main grandstand area and the booth with the DJ and the music and the PA announcer. And, of course, I want to lay it on thick there because that's the big important crowded area of the parade. And what I don't realize is most of these cannons are paper cannons, but he gives me a Mylar one that's metal, and it goes up into the air, catches onto the power lines, and (laughs) blows one of the Transformers out. (laughs) I hear a huge explosion, and again, I'm in costume, I'm like, what the heck was that? Thinking that like a bomb went off or something, and I had no clue what it was. Well, what it was was one of the transformers. And I blew the power out for like a four block radius, including what was powering the entire stage at the parade. <laughs> so the PA, the music, everything went out the rest of the day.
0: Oh, that's a great and job. I don't realize
5: this until after the fact. So I'm like, Oh great. I just ruined the Martin Luther King jr. Parade.
0: Well, what a great story. And you got about a minute left here. Tell us what it was like to win a spot in the mascot hall of fame.
5: Oh, it was great. It was uh humbling, uh, especially because it's from a lot of the guys that do this every day for their their career and their life, your peers, Uh, not just, you know, uh, people that really know the insides of the the profession and the daily grind of it and the the challenge of being creative and writing your own material, producing it, directing it, and uh, starring in it. Uh, So it was humbling. It was great. It was one of the great honors of my career. I can't wait to see them uh, finish construction on it and visit it up in Whiting, Indiana, Uh, so it was, it was great.
0: Well, we look forward to meeting you there. We want to be there when, when the induction occurs. We've been talking to Robert Bodwin, and he is the artist formerly known as Clutch. And you can go to robertbodwin.com and catch up with his life, where he is at. And thank you for those great, great stories, Robert.
5: Man, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. I'm doing inspirational speaking now as a career in marketing consulting. So any of your listeners out there, that uh, would like to reach out to me for a speech or for some consulting help, I would love to entertain uh, a discussion with
0: them. You bet. That's RobertBodwin.com, and that's Robert B O U D W I N.com. The artist, formerly known as Clutch, and that is Clutch from the Houston Rockets, their dear and endearing mascot. This is our American Stories.